Um, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Happy Dog. I'm Karina Van Vliet. I'm a proud member of both the City Club of Cleveland and the Cleveland Council on World Affairs, and that's how I got uh, designated with asking the hard questions for the first half an hour until you asked the even harder questions in the second half an hour. And we're here tonight to talk about social protest and, and revolutions and, and social mobilization. And the reason why we thought this would be interesting to talk about right now is it sort of feels like there have been waves and waves of people on the streets demonstrating. I mean, the latest one was about gun violence and gun control law issues. But before that, it was hashtag me too and Black Lives Matter. And it's not only happening here in the United States, it's happening all across the world. And we'll all remember that in 2011, we watched the entire Middle East rise up and demand transformation. And so to help us think through these issues, uh, tonight I have here with us Karen Beckwith, who is the Flora Stone Mather Professor and Chair of the Department of Political Science at Case Western Reserve University. Uh, and we also have Pete Moore, who is the Hanna Professor of Political Science at Case Western Reserve University. So that's why we have big case representation on the panel tonight. <laughs> so I thought I'd, we'd start off, I'd start by asking our panelists, what are we really talking about here? Um, we've mentioned a lot of different movements, but how do we define these and how do we understand them? Is it just one issue, like the gun controls, or to be, a, to be considered um, a, you know, how do we define social movements versus revolutions, and does it matter if it's a social issue, a political issue? Like, can we have some examples and start there? So maybe Karen. Well, that's a small question. So let me start by um, first saying thank you to the City Club and to Karina um, for and to Professor Moore for the uh, invitation to join everyone here at Happy Dog. Um, plus. Professor Moore drove me over, so that was even better. Um, and it's just great to be here. So the first thing I want to say is that when we think about um, social protests, and we think about political movements and revolutions, and we think about episodic revolt, we can think about these in terms of um, contentious politics. And so I'll provide you with just a brief definition of that and then just talk about that really quickly, and then um, I'll have more to say later. So when we think about contentious politics, this is a term that was devised by Chuck Tilley, Doug McAdam, and Sidney Terrow, who are a combination of po political scientists and sociologists who were writing in the previous decade, and they define contentious politics as episodic, public, collective interaction among makers of claims and their objects, when at least um, one government is the object uh, of, of claims, that is the object of claims, or a party to the claims, and the claims would, secondly, if realized, affect the interests of at least some of the claim claimants or the objects of the claims. And so this is a fairly... Um, esoteric definition, but what it links is, it links the state and it links collective actors as citizens in mass undertaking. So when we think about collective action, we can think about contentious politics on a continuum from perhaps the episodic, not very frequent, um, highly constrained act of voting in elections, all the way to revolts and revolutions. So that's my starting point in part, is to think about social movements and political movements in the context of other political activity. And I can say more about that later, but I know that Professor Moore will have some wonderful, brilliant things to say. <laughs> oh, so thanks uh, for, for, for everybody coming. Uh, Karen is my colleague, but also uh, you guys got to know she's my boss. So yeah. Um, <clears throat> and this idea of this topic comes out of um, courses that we teach. So. You can consider this sort of like a mini teach-in in a sense. I teach a course on revolts and revolutions, and Karen teaches a course on contentious politics. Yeah, this is the stuff in, in history and social and political life that's the big stuff, 
uh, revolutions. Um, and when we think about modern revolutions, they're rare. Uh, by, by, by revolutions, I mean things like uh, the French Revolution, the American Revolution, Russia, uh, China. Uh, our most recent one is Iran in 1979. And what makes these things unique is this idea that they are social revolutions, meaning that, um, for example, what happened in Egypt in 2011 when the president of Egypt was deposed, Hosni Mubarak, that was not a revolution. That was removal of a political leader that we could consider like a political revolution. And that happens a lot more, the removal of a, of a political leader. But a social revolution is something that's, uh, in a sense, violent. There is violence involved. But, it, but more than that, it means a full change of the entire social system. Right? So that's why these things are rare, and they don't happen that often. Um, so not just Iran, France, the US, we can think of Cuba, Vietnam. Uh, the Nicaraguan Revolution, um, but there's many, many more cases where we can talk about efforts at revolution that never get there, right? Um, so that's where this continuum of contentious politics comes in. Where we can look at revolts, uh, political opposition movements, uh, and things like that. And, and I think one thing that's important to keep in mind is these are not, even though social revolutions are really unique occurrences, and they're historically very consequential. Um, the French, and I think the United States is still in the midst of our revolution. The ideas that uh, started these things are still ideas we debate. But we also want to recognize that these types of politics are normal. Uh, I, like, so I'm thinking of like recently the, the birth date of Frederick Douglass, the, the, the great emancipationist. I mean, he, he had this line like, Power never concedes anything without a demand. It never has and it never will. Politics is about contestation. Sometimes it's violent, but often it's about recalcitrance. And, and I would just summarize this by saying, think about the greatest advancements in American society. Women's vote, the, the, the union movement, uh, civil rights movement. These things did not come about through purely voting or purely trying to convince people and compromising. They came about because people like from my hometown, Atlanta, Georgia, Ma uh, Martin Luther King, you know, said no, right? Um, and I think we also need to recognize that in those times, those people like MLK were seen as troublemakers, were not liked, were feared, right? Particularly in my hometown of Atlanta, the white community feared Martin Luther King. I was raised believing he was a troublemaker. And then today I look and see my sons coming home from elementary school telling me that, you know, Dr. King came from Atlanta and all this. So it shows that there's progress. But I think we also need to remember and recognize that, yeah, recalcitrance and opposition is as part of politics as the kinds of things we read about today as voting and, and canvassing and these types of things. So I think my question is, um, if, if contentious politics is normal, why does it feel like right now this is all that we're experiencing? And I think my question I would like to explore is, what's the role of social media in amplifying some of these movements? Karen, do you have any thoughts? So those are two questions. 
and I don't know that I'll do the best job in answering either one of them. I've been thinking about this a lot, and so one is I've been thinking about just, just the statement, why are we seeing all of this at this point in time? But the truth of the matter is that we've been seeing all of this for a long period of time. Contentious politics is actually, as Professor Morris said, contentious politics is normal, and we can see it in, in, in different manifestations. So I was sort of making a list of the recent sort of signature um, contentious politics that we might think about, separate from elections, which occur in the United States at the federal level every two years, um, every four years for the presidency, um, obviously, but every two years for Congress and a third of the Senate and, and all of the House. So thinking about, for example, the Tea Party, which was a small, nascent set of campaigns that came together in an organization in, uh, that, that began in 2009 that was just part of a rant um, on television, on CNBC by Rick Santelli, and then small groups formed across the nation, and there's some really interesting scholarship on this. Um, that's a group, by the way, that's been more or less subsumed by the Republican Party, which made many efforts to, in fact, subsume that group. And so, again, when we think about contentious politics, we need to think about who all the actors are, including political parties, um, for better or for ill, and however we want to evaluate them. And then Occupy Wall Street came fairly quickly. That came two years later. Um, Black Lives Matter um, began, um, depending on who you want to identify as starting point sometime in July in 2013. So we've been seeing for a long period of time now these sort of groups that come up that are mobilizing, that have explicit demands. The, the demands are more or less demands directed toward the state. Some are more diffuse, some are more specific, some are better organized. Occupy Wall Street did not have a very clear set of demands, and they may have been more revolutionary in content, but not revolutionary in former organizational capacity. Um, one of the things that we can think about right now is the, I think, the end to the teacher strike in West Virginia, and that was a <coughs> statewide strike of um, all public school teachers, and that's part of contentious politics as well, and those demands were made directly to the state. So school teachers were there in Charleston saying, you have to give us a 5% salary increase, and you also have to make sure that we have health insurance that we can afford. So this was, again, highly disruptive and contentious, but it's part of this interaction of major political actors, individual citizens, political parties, those who, are, who hold elective office, and other influential people who are interested in politics and who have the power to make change. And I'll just mention very briefly, we can think about the Women's March, marches, now plural, um, that began in January of 2017. We can think about the Me Too campaign and the Time's Up campaign. And also, um, there are various names that are still in development, the Enough is Enough, um, I've been really thinking a lot about the school shooting in um, uh, Mary Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, thinking about the connections of that activism that came almost directly out of that opportunity of high school students saying basically enough is enough, and thinking a lot about the Black Lives Matter um, organization and, and, and thinking about their sort of signature um, you know, sort of hashtag phrases, and I'll get to social media in a little bit here, um, which is, um, so for the school shooting, the, the, the um, hashtag remark is enough is enough, but for Black Lives Matter, it was hands up, don't shoot, and I can't breathe. And so there's something about violence that's going on against actors in both of those campaigns that I think is pretty interesting, and I think there might be some um, even opportunities for synergy. The one thing that I will say um, in regard to the, um, uh, uh, renewed activism around gun control is the ability, so it's not just social media, it's who the actors were to begin with. So high school students who went to a high school who identified themselves as specific actors, they called themselves survivors. 
and they organized with and spread information with other like actors who could be similarly situated. And these are high school students all around the country. And so this was, a, I think, a pretty interesting form of contentious politics that spread fairly quickly in regard to social media. And obviously the Me Too campaign is, is another really good example of that. Quick communication, shared information that served as a basis for some forms of mobilization. Um, so that raises a question. <laughs> there you um, go. Yeah, that was a lot to digest. Uh, but this raises a question for me of the relationship of social protest to democracy, right? Because we have democratic systems, and like you mentioned, we have elections, and that's supposed to be the form for citizens to express their views one way or the other. So what is the role of social protest, and why is it so necessary? So, Peter, I'll let you talk in a minute, I promise. So, in regard to voting, voting is not such a good mechanism for expressing our preferences. It's a good mechanism for electing officials. And those two things are <coughs> separable. So, we often um, say that we'll vote for someone, we'll hold our nose and vote, or we don't like either of the candidates. But it's not a bad mechanism for actually selecting those who govern. But it's not an act separate from other acts. So, just putting people into public office only puts people into public office. What's makes, what makes them act is the exercise of freedom of speech and freedom of association, which are guaranteed to everyone in the United States, citizen or not, um, by the First Amendment. Uh, so. Uh, these are rights that help with social protest. And so these things, again, I want to suggest are linked. They're not separable. And as Professor Morris said, they're not, not normal. They are, in fact, normal politics that um, move across time and are um, frequent and emblematic in the United States so, and other countries. Yeah, so how does this play out in other countries? Because obviously in the U.S. it's a democratic system, but a lot of the systems you know, we've talked about in the Middle East, those are more authoritarian regimes. And so how, how does that play out in that context? Right. I I think there's a lot more similarities. I think that <clears throat> what we, when we say democracy, I'm not really sure we always know what we're talking about. And I think that this idea, and I, and I think that this profession that Karen and I are in, uh, the study of politics, has not done well by this because, I, because the American idea of democracy really is just voting. Right? I mean, that's basically what we think democracy is about. And that's deeply flawed because in reality, this idea of representing, being represented by an elected official, is at the core, is at the core of democracy. And yet that's not what we're doing when we vote. We are not electing representatives. We are authorizing an individual to then take up an office. And so it's not unsurprising where voters who feel disenfranchised, that feel that their vote, whether on the left, right, or center, feel that their vote is not, does not change or does not move towards the values uh, that they hold, this is a key problem of democracy. And I think it's not just a problem in, here in this democracy. I think it's a problem across the democratic world that's been bubbling for a long time. And I'll, and I'll make this comparison. So in the Middle East, you, you know, to use the example again of Hosni Mubarak or Abdus Saleh, the president of Yemen is another good example, or Ben Ali in Tunisia, these guys held elections. They held a, Mubarak would hold an election every four years. He'd get 98% of the vote, right? Abdul Saleh would do the same thing. He'd spend millions of dollars, have a fake election, and, and have, you know, he would win by over 90% of the vote. The, the funny thing is that Egyptians and Yemenis and Syrians, if they voted for the Assads, they knew that this vote was a joke, and therefore their turnout rates were like 20%. So if you're not voting for anything and you know you're not voting for anything, why show up? unless someone's paying you, of course. When you look at turnout rates in the United States, we are beginning to look like Egypt in the 1980s. 
right? Local elections, Americans don't show up. It's not registered voters. Eligible voters in the United States were not involved. So not only is it a problem of putting all of democracy on a vote, which is a very thin conception of democracy, right? I think a better version of democracy is, is you know, placing collective binding claims on political authority. And that opens up to much more than voting. So it's not only the problem of thinking our democracy is simply about voting or free speech or some sort of idea that as long as I can choose whatever I want, I'm in a free society. Like that's a very shallow, thin view of politics. But the other problem is even if we believe it, we're not showing up. And I think that that's one reason that we see these extra systemic protest movements that are making demands. So in the case of West Virginia, these strikes were technically illegal. These were wildcat strikes in, in West Virginia. But all of the teachers were doing it. And therefore, the, the fact of whether it was legal or not was not the point. The point was all of West Virginia's teachers were willing to put this on the line. And that's, that's the critical difference. But so I'm curious, but is there some relationship to democracy? Because I'm thinking of China, right? So President Xi Jinping just announced there's no more term limits and no one's protesting. No one's protesting as much in Russia. And these are countries where there's like a real stronghold on power. Right. Yeah, I think it's important to recognize that normalcy and quiet uh, is not necessarily indicative of what people are holding, right? So to go back to the authoritarian example, so a place like Syria. In Syria for decades, Syrians never stuck their head up. They always had a picture of, of Hafez al-Assad, the president, and then his son. Or if you're in Saudi Arabia, have a picture of the king, and you would visit Damascus, you'd go, hey, everything's okay here. The Syrians, they really like this guy. But, you know, that spark hits that sacrifice is made and suddenly we're not, we're suddenly surprised, you know? And I would say that the quiet that we see in places like Russia or China is not um, a, a quiet of acceptance. It, it's a quiet of having to keep your head down. Um, and so the sort of art of understanding these types of movements is, try to, is trying to appreciate that moment where those hidden grievances that we share, you know, the winking or like when we're sitting at a public space and we, we connect with someone and we make a, a sly joke about the president, right, and then we move on. What happens when that collective shared sort of below the table uh, grievance suddenly comes into the open? And that's something that we don't have good explanations for. And it's surprising, but it's not unexpected. So like in the US we have social protests, whereas in Syria they had a civil war and a revolution. Is that how it happens? There's just like the violence gets greater because it's been suppressed for longer? No, I think it's also the, your opponent, right? The other, the other yeah. part about this is who and what are you opposing? Or in the verbiage of this field of study, who are the counter-revolutionaries? So in a place like Syria, it was very clear this regime was going to use violence right away. Um, and, and unfortunately, that, that transpires in a, lot of, in a lot of situations. So potential revolutionaries need to understand who the enemy is, and I think that's one thing we have a problem with in our politics in the United States. We can't, if you're talking about liberals and the left, they can't agree on who the enemy is. Um, so you have to know who you're dealing with, um, and, and, and I think that's a, that's a key moment. And that's one thing, I think, to also understand 
why a lot of the kinds of revolts or the coming together, whether it's Black Lives Matter or um, nonviolent protesters in a place like Syria, why they more often than not fail. Part of the reason is who they're uh, opposing, but we can also talk about the other problems are inherent in their movements, like what you need to have uh, to make a successful revolution or a successful political change. Yeah, I think that's a great follow-on question. So when we look at the outcomes of these different movements, what are some of the factors in terms of resources, mobilization strategy that <coughs> can help explain movements that are successful versus others that just fall by the wayside? So we can think about this in, in maybe two different ways. One is what Professor Morris already alluded to, which is what is it that gives the spark to <coughs> mobilization? And I think some of the things that you've already just suggested, Karina, are those things. What's the political opportunity structure look like? Who are your opponents? Who does not agree with you and will oppose you? Who is your target? What is your target willing to do? And what are you willing to do to defeat your target as you interact with that target? So if you're thinking about, for example, the state of West Virginia, making sure that nobody's in school is not a bad way to target members of the legislature. And then you don't go to Matewan or Redbush or other places in West Virginia. You go to the state capitol because those are the people there who can pass the legislation, who can make a difference. And the legislature of West Virginia and their governor appeared not willing to shoot them all when they showed up at the legislature. And this is in a state where if you protest and show up in a labor movement, for example, during a mining strike, sometimes the government is happy to shoot you and kill you. So um, these things all have to come together in a very particular way. So. Who's willing to be active? Is the opportunity right? Do you have the resources to do it? Do you have a discourse and a framework for talking about your grievances? So grievances always exist. So grievances in Syria, as Professor Moore was saying, grievances were there. But grievances are not meaningful to us when we think about political activism until they um, mobilize themselves or until people mobilize those, uh, around those grievances and make them manifest to change them. So this is, this, this is getting above then the level of quiescence to the level of activism, getting from um, being unhappy and having serious grievances to the level of engaging in contentious politics. And just back to, maybe because I'm fascinated by it, but this question of violence and the role of violence, is that a success factor or a, a factor of, no, this movement's not going to be successful because it was too violent? And what of, um, you know, nonviolent peaceful movements and revolutions that we've seen? So, in regard to violence, one of the things that's important is to figure out, not only will your target use violence against you, but will your target be supported in using that violence? So knowing not only who your target is, but who supports that, that target. So it's really clear, to me at least, maybe I'm wrong, that the, the Syrian army supports the regime and we're not willing to step away, that the Chinese ar army supports the regime and is not willing to step away. Not so maybe clear in Iran, not clear in some other instances, certainly not at the beginning of the Soviet Union. So for the, the so, one of the things that we always talk about in my political movements class is who has the capacity to do the most violence, and that's the state. Nobody's armed better than the state. So you have to think about what the state is willing to do and how much support the state has. If soldiers won't enact the violence that state um, officials want to be enacted, then the game is almost over because then violence can't be enacted. But if there's widespread support for what the state is doing and for those state actors, then it's a different um, situation and then uh, those who are hoping to mobilize for change have to think very carefully about what tactics they might be able to use. 
So we're almost coming up on a half an hour, and I'd like to invite all of you to think of questions and to come up to the microphone, which is lined up here. I'm going to ask one last question and then uh, open it up. So I think my last question is just taking all of this and um, taking a step back and looking at this in historical perspective. So is this pattern of cycles of social protest, violence, revolution, changing the entire system, is, is this... Is, the, is there a pattern in history, and are we just in a specific moment in the cycle? And if there's a pattern, is there some predictability here, or is it kind of just, yeah, that was history, it happened, and... Um, well, going back on the last question, I mean, whenever this question about violence and um, revolutionary change or radical change crops up, um, you know, it's a tough one. Uh, violence is both a political tactic, it's a moral calculation, um, but it's also something that uh, was inherent in a lot of movements that we now champion as uh, a global good. Nelson Mandela spent 25 years in jail. He was allowed to leave early if he disavowed the use of violence, and he never did. Never did. Nelson Mandela embraced violence as a form of legitimate resistance, as have a number of uh, revolutionary leaders, both ones in history that we think are good and ones that we think... Are, are bad. Um, again, I think we become enamored with our own um, uh, civil rights movement thinking in, in, in hindsight that it was all just a bunch of people holding hands and skipping across bridges in Selma, Alabama. It was not that at all. Um, and I think this <clears throat> issue of the pattern um, is important. There, you know, we're social scientists, and unfortunately, a lot of us worship at the altar of prediction. Um, I think prediction's a con game, in a sense. However, there's a lot of effort at trying to predict revolutions, right? Uh, some of the greatest books in history in the social sciences were written trying to understand this. Um, they've all been unsuccessful, right? The, one of the greatest books written by a, a still current political scientist, uh, Theta Scotchpole, she writes it in 1979. It, it's, the, it's the slam dunk book, one of the greatest books in our field. It gets her tenure at Harvard. It, it predicts, it, it doesn't predict it. It, it, it has this beautiful explanation of the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution. Uh, and then literally three months after she writes the book, the Iranian Revolution happens, which blows this book out of the water. Um, so on the one hand, I think we have to be careful about trying to predict it, although I understand the desire to want to do that. But I would say this, and, and this is not my, my own idea, this is a book I'm teaching in one of my classes, is there is something to this, to this facet or this phenomenon that we have not seen a really serious consequential either revolutionary movement or political change movement really since the early 1980s. We haven't seen it. And so Occupy Wall Street, failure. Uh, Black Lives Matters, still working through. We have a lot of the Iranian revolutions, the Iranian efforts at uh, protests in the last several years died down. Other protests uh, in Europe have died down. One of the problems is partially solidarity. If you want to have a successful social movement, you need cross-cutting alliances. Or an old-fashioned word, you need solidarity. So it's not enough for Black Lives Matter activists to just focus on oppression at home. They have to link that to oppression globally. And, and then I think they're trying to do that. And the other final thing I'll say that's missing in these more recent um, movements is ideas. You know, like this idea to just reform 
the political system, if only we could just like tick taxes up just a little bit more, these are insufficient ideas. These are not radical ideas that are trying to change fundamental political realities. And I think that, whether it's in Iran, or it's in Occupy, or it's um, in some of the European movements, right and left, um, they're failing. These ideas are not there anymore. These kind of ideas to actually change the future, not just to liberate, but to actually change our daily lives. These ideas aren't there in these new movements. And I think there's sort of an ideological deficit that's at play. Karen, any final thoughts on patterns and predictability? So there is a literature on cycles of protest. <coughs> now, this doesn't speak to um, when revolutions start, but it does speak to the um, unwinding or unfolding of, um, of social protest, and in particular social movements and in explicit social movement campaigns. And this has to do with the capacity of persons to sustain across a long period of time activism at a very high level that often is highly disruptive to personal lives, to personal safety, to capacity to, to be happy. Doug McAdams' book, Freedom Summer, is full of references. He doesn't analyze these very well. Full of references to his interview subjects of people from this part of the country who went to the South to work in the Civil Rights Movement and, and were part of Freedom Summer, that as they recount those experiences, they cry over and over during the interviews. The men and the women, they weep and weep and weep. So, it's, so this kind of activism is very high cost, and it can't be sustained over a long period of time. And then secondly, as movements unfold, they interact with their targets, they interact with their opponents, and it changes what their capacities are. It changes um, their willingness to go for the next, the, the very next thing. So, for example, in West Virginia, my understanding is the teachers are going back to work with the promise that the government will form a task force to investigate health care costs. That's not what they asked for. They asked for health care that they could afford and a 5% salary increase. Now, they got the 5% salary increase, but they didn't get what they asked for in regard to health care, and they might never get it. Because setting up a commission, I assure you, is never the first demand of any social movement, no matter how reformist it is. So, th th so s protests ebb and, uh, ebb and flow, and they ebb and flow in a way that I don't want to use the word natural, but in this regard, they are predictable, that these, some of these things can't be sustained over time, and interaction with other actors causes them um, causes people to rationally make a decision. You know, a 5% salary increase is better than a 4% salary increase, which was promised last week, and the teacher said, no, thank you. And it's better than nothing, which is what the West Virginia teachers were getting. So, thank you. Um, would like to have some questions, please. How do you do? Uh, based on what you're saying, people who want to be active to support the dreamers and uh, immigration reform comprehensive must look to uh, broaden their scope, just not work together, try to show society how helping these people is to their benefit, correct, if they want to be successful? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think with any movement like that, uh, yeah, it, I mean, the, the, the struggle for um, recognition of immigrant rights in the United States and even those that find themselves here not by their own volition, but by conditions that push them here. I mean, let's not forget that, you know, it's, it's so ironic that um, it, you have one of the largest El Salvadorian populations in Washington, D.C. And, you know, you go like, why, why are all these El Salvadorians working in kitchens and blue-collar labor in D.C.? It has a little bit to do with a civil war that the United States helped foment there that pushed these people here. So, yeah, I think that 
one of the keys to a sustainable movement is solidarity and cross-cutting alliances. And I mean, just historically, when you look at the great revolutions, that's one of the keys. You know, the Bolsheviks tried to have their revolution in 1905 and thought it was all cute if they just run around the cities and, you know, and spout off Marxist sloganeering. But they wised up in 1917. They recognized they needed the peasants. They needed the middle class. And they needed parts of the army. Um, so I do think that this, this, these lessons of history apply um, and that broader movements have a better chance to succeed. <clears throat> the, the tough thing comes in, as Karen said, how do you sustain it? I mean, at the end of the day, going to a protest may not cost a lot, right? If it's a protest that's fairly nonviolent. But if you're in the Black Lives Matter movement and you're going to go stand up against the police in Ferguson, Man, that takes a serious calculation, right? I mean, like, I'm a father. I have kids. I don't want my kids to go to protests where they can get their heads cracked open. I really don't. And I appreciate that people are willing, you know, to step out there and make those kinds of commitments, even when the short-term benefits, uh, going to jail, being arrested, or hurt, you know, are not so great for them. And I, and I think that's a, a vexing question. But at the end of the day, if you have enough people with you, if you have enough solidarity and people are sharing in those views, um, you're going to have people more willing to go out there day after day after day. And it happens a lot in human history. It's not, it, while it's rare to actually succeed, it's not rare for people to make personal sacrifice for a good that extends beyond their own personal benefits. Um, my question is uh, in the nature of constitutional rights. Um, <clears throat> you said don't get too much into opinion. I'm a, a victim of a false arrest and a wrongful conviction. Um, and um, I have the opportunity now, I'm in an appeals case, I'm not looking for legal advice, and I'm challenging a state law um, that involves a violation of my First Amendment, my free speech. Um, I was arrested for allegedly making noise while someone was hunting in Seven Hills and convicted. Um, and this happened about three months ago. And my question to you is, I'm in appeals. I'm challenging the state constitutional, based on constitutional First Amendment free speech, that I have a right to protest. I feel like a one-person revolution. What can I do? To, to get, do I need to use intersectionality? Do I need to use, um, what is gonna get people more interested in not just, oh, the animals, which I am an animal rights activist, but what are we gonna do to get people interested in property owners being violated, First Amendment free speech being violated, women property owners being violated, and especially police who have so freaking much power that the, the cops and the judges are all in these good old boys. So what do we do to try to fight that? What can we do to get people aware of what's going on in Ohio? So I have to confess I'm not completely sure what the question is, but <clears throat> I think, so what was my first answer that I wanted to say to you? First of all, I'm sorry that you're in this circumstance. This cannot be it. fun. I lost my job because of it. I'm still going through it, so. Um, but the first, I, I guess, is this is not advice to you. This is thinking about, so how does one mobilize around an issue? And social movements are not individual. They're collective. <coughs> and so it's hard to have success as an individual um, in a large scope um, to influence policy. 
So I'm trying to think about this a little bit in, in social movement terms. If we're thinking about animal rights activism, and there is a whole series of campaigns around this as part of a much larger movement, um, that's a little different um, because that is something that's organized. That's something that has a frame for it. It has a very common frame that resonates very heavily in the United States, and that's a rights frame. So, um, you know, 50 years ago, the idea that animals would have rights would be laughable. Um, in fact, the idea that women or homosexuals that have rights would also be laughable. But, but a rights frame is very powerful in the United States. We believe in rights that adhere to individuals, but they can also adhere to all individuals and not just human individuals. So a good frame for a movement is really important. And the discourse that a movement employs is also really helpful. So for example, peace movements are not generally violent movements because even their own actions have to frame what the issue is for them. Um, so peace movement activists generally engage in nonviolent activities rather than violent activities. Um, so I think that's all I have to say. Well, I think it raises, if I may interject, I think it raises a great question about how movements start, right? Because the idea has to germinate somewhere, unless from what I'm understanding, it's everyone's feeling the same thing, and at some point, some fruit vendor sets himself on fire in Tunisia. But how do sort of smaller scale protests of the teachers, who started that? Start somewhere. I mean, I think, so that, that's one of the things that crippled the movements in 2011 in the Arab world. The fact that they didn't have a clear leadership in the short term was great because authoritarian leaders love to have a leader, someone they can either jail or co-opt. And so in the short term, these movements rapidly expanded across the region uh, because they were leaderless. The, the, the central political authority had no one to crack down on. But then once you get to that point where you have to make demands and you have to come up with an organization and you have to see things through, not having a leadership uh, was one of the big Achilles heels in these movements. Um, and I, I don't have much in, in terms of sort of direct uh, ideas about this, but I will, about your situation, but I will say this. Fighting on cases of rights in the legal realm uh, is definitely, one route that we have, that all movements, uh, extra systemic or working within the system, have to address. But I think the other thing to keep in mind is for movements that are more collective, an active citizenry has to be engaged in trying to affect and focus on areas where social and political norms are at stake. And that's not necessarily things that are formally political. That's thinking about where are political and social norms reconstituted, repeated, and then sort of get absorbed into the body politic. Uh, and that's where an active citizenry needs to focus. So that means that, yes, artists and actors and people that you don't, that you think of in sort of an artistic realm or you think of in an economic realm, these things are part of politics. And so movements that are successful, and I think Black Lives Matter is a good example of this. I think that um, some of the movements in Syria and, and, and Palestine are similar to this, in which they're trying, yes, they're trying to try to change laws, but they're trying to change norms and ideas. They're trying to change what we consider fair and what we consider fair treatment. And I think that's something that often gets overlooked and that people that think, oh, that's politics, man. I don't want to get involved in that. Don't realize that the norms that they're part of are actually really important material of the politics of, of what's possible, right? It's about what's possible, not like 
we can't do this. Right. <clears throat> uh, do you believe that Donald Trump's enemies understand that if they overthrow him in any way other than a constitutional honest election, whether it's by a phony Russian collusion hoax or by the direct method that the conspiracy used against people such as John Kennedy and, and Martin Luther King Jr. Do you think that his enemies understand uh, what the course of the revolution will be in the United States then? I don't think we're at a revolutionary moment in the United States. I, whether we are or not, do you, if Donald Trump is removed from office in any way other than a constitutional honest election, uh, do you think there will be, and what the consequences will be of that? Uh, for the record, I prefer not to have one. <laughs> <laughs> I think if he's removed from office, it will be through impeachment. Um, I think, and that's a very difficult means. Um, we've not managed to um, uh, convict a president in an impeachment trial in this country. Yeah, even when they deserved it. Next question, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, about social revolution and content, oh, and politics, contentious politics. How would you say Locke or Niebuhr, just my interest, how does, how do, might they comment on these, especially Niebuhr, with Obama being his favorite philosopher and such? Oh, you mean John Locke and, uh, yeah, and uh, yeah. Uh, Niebuhr, I'm more, you know, the idea of ambiguity and not maybe, not being pacifist, not pro-violence, sort of. I'm just. Yeah, I, you know, I'd say that in their day, Locke and Mills were radicals, right? And, and these were very dangerous individuals in their day. Today, you read Locke and Mill, and they're, you know, in a lot of ways, various, they, in, in, in our particular system, they're, they're, they're status quo in a lot of ways. Um, Are they undergirding of neoliberalism? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the problems, this idea that, that basically our problems are about governance and trying to, like, fix a more efficient system, um, as opposed to the ideas that those individuals were espousing in their times were very revolutionary ideas. You know, the idea, uh, the liberal idea of, of a person is measured by, uh, you know, their value on the marketplace today, I think, is anachronistic and status quo, but in those days, it was, uh, it was a direct attack on the hierarchy in Europe, you well, know? What so, about Obama sort of loving Niebuhr and his ideas that are a little more recent and the idea of ambiguity <clears throat> and sort of recognizing that as opposed I don't, to yeah, I mean, but for, that's part of the problem. I mean, at some point, um, if you're going to push forward ideas that are systemically radical, and I don't mean revolutionary, I mean like, yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, paid maternity leave. Wow, it's a radical idea in the U.S. I mean, if you did paid maternity leave, if you had a single-payer health care system and, I don't know, throw in, like, free two-year education, that's not a revolution in the United States, but that would be profoundly economic. That would talk about the redistribution of assets. That would that would, in the American context, be revolutionary. And so what I don't like about ambiguity is ambiguity. Because at the <laughs> end of the day, I mean, at the end of the day, you've got to have, you've got to have an enemy. You've got to say, this is what I don't stand for. That idea, I am against. And 
And at the same time, you can accept sor sort of a, a moral complexity, right? Like I can say, like I really do stand for these ideas, even though I might understand also that someone could be injured by them. Some very wealthy person or some person that earned their money by their own sweat of their brow is going to have to cough up a lot of money so that, you know, a woman with three jobs gets maternity leave when her kid's born. I'm, I, I recognize that's complex, but I'm willing to stand for that. Ambiguity seems to me to be a different thing, and, and that's why I, I never was happy with sort of that Obama administration view that like, well, we, can, we, we can't go too far now. We, 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 have, we, we can only get what we can get. Don't have, you know, the response usually is, don't have purity of politics. That won't get us anywhere. We have to move by incremental change. I'm sorry, I think incremental change is why we have the problems we have today, and it's also why millions of Americans were willing to vote for Donald Trump. For good reasons and bad reasons. I mean, most of my family voted for the man. I'm from Georgia. I mean, he carried the state, carried most of my neighborhood in Atlanta. So, <clears throat> you know, that's, that, I, think, I think that's what I don't like about that Obama administration, that sort of like incremental change. We can't change this. I mean, that's where we got ourselves in this. And that's what these kids in, in Florida are demanding. They're not demanding incremental change. They're demanding serious radical change in how we manage firearms in this country. And that's why the NRA and people that donate money to them and donate money to the Congress are so bloody scared because they recognize what that is. It's not incremental change. It's not a background check. First, I contend that the reason that Arab Spring was successful in Tunisia is that the government did not want to use violence on the civilians. If the government had ordered the military to attack, they would have said no. More importantly, I think in order for a successful revolution, you need three things. The proper leader, the proper situation, and someone to blame. In Russia, why did it fail in 1904, after the Russo-Japanese War, but succeeded in 1918, 1921, after the massive casualties of World War I, and the incompetent military? And why did Hitler rise in Germany? The, uh, what, Section 18 of the Treaty of Versailles, that reparations, and it basically they drove the Germans off the cliff. Question? Yeah. And if they ever wanted to get back, it was a th they had the right leader and the third leg of the stool to make the revolution successful. You know, what are the three basically successful legs for the revolution to succeed? And your question? That's what are the three ah. requirements for the revolution to succeed. Do you agree with what I said? So the social movements literature doesn't talk very much about leaders, actually. And the success of movements that turn on leadership are almost only evaluated retrospectively. So it's hard to say this is the leader who will lead us um, to the promised land in terms of revolution. For political movements, the most successful, the, the, the elements that have to be in place are generally the following. There has to be a political opportunity. There has to be some opening that makes it a good time to act on grievances. So if the state is armed and completely allied with those who govern, it's probably not a good time to engage in something that's going to provoke violence. 
So one way to look at that is to look at where the elites are. Are there fractures um, among the elite? Are, uh, is, 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 is there um, no longer any elite solidarity among those who govern, among those who, are, who, who literally rule? Um, if there's not allegiance, that means that there are elites that can be leveraged by a political movement away from um, other elites and that might actually use the opportunity themselves to gain power. Um, so what's the political opportunity structure look like? Does the, um, do those who are thinking they will act on grievances have the resources to do it? Um, do, uh, can they um, identify the proper target? Can they identify the proper strategy? And can they get to where they need to go to make their grievances clear? So you can go to Charleston, West Virginia. Women can march to Washington, D.C. Probably not the best idea to go march to Las Vegas, where the national government does not sit, um, especially at a time when the president was already beleaguered. Probably better to have gone back to Washington. Um, going to Tallahassee, not a bad idea if you're high school students who want to stop people from going into high schools and murdering high school students and their teachers and coaches. It's probably a good idea to go to the state capitol. And this is where contentious politics is really important, by the way, that there is something really valuable about who is in government. So elections are not meaningless because they actually replace those leaders. Now, they may replace them with people we don't like or we don't think they're good enough or we don't think they've gone far enough or, you know, I share some of Professor Moore's impatience, shall I say, with the ambiguity and nuance of our previous president. But those are the people who can vote in legislatures and make law. So those are the people in Tallahassee who will change the gun, the gun laws in the state of Florida. Those are the people who can say, okay, a 5% salary increase for teachers in West Virginia. Um, so the ability to identify properly the target and have the resources to get there and then bring pressure on them um, are key things that have to do with political movements. Now, I'm not talking about revolutions, which are much more fraught and, as Professor Morris already um, suggested, much rarer. And then finally, I'll just so, say again, how a movement presents itself in terms of the discourse it uses, the narratives it tells, and the frames it employs are really helpful. Um, one can have frames that suddenly resonate with citizens and think that's absolutely right, enough is enough. It's absolutely right that black people should not be shot in the streets for no reason, or even any reason. That's what trials are for. <laughs> um, that's what incarceration's for. Um, so there are some really clear frames and, and, and stories that can be told in terms of narrative that can cast efforts um, to, address, to redress grievances in a way that can, can lead to some modicum of success. Uh, how do, you, how do you, uh, you, you mentioned solidarity earlier. How do you get, get two different parties to gain traction? So one of my favorite books is The Outsiders. So you have the socials and you have the greasers. The socials necessarily being uh, the, the youth down in uh, Florida where the, sh the school was shot up at. Then you have the youth, inner city youth all across the U.S. who are plagued by the same issues. But these youth, the socials, get a larger platform, get CNN, get to talk to our representatives, but they don't. How can you connect these groups together to create a larger contentious re revolution or argument or something? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, earlier we talked about social media, and um, but I do think, I think this idea of uh, either Trans, transnational solidarity is key. So, I mean, you're talking about, I think that's really interesting, like su suburban kids where it seems like a lot of the shootings occur, but yet inner city schools and communities are also plagued by guns, but it's sort of a different, um, uh, it's sort of episodically different and, it, and we don't normally connect the two. And that's where, that's where strategies and movements have to come in. 
Um, and you have to make those linkages. And I hadn't really thought about that until you mentioned it, but it would seem like an obvious um, a resource for those students in Florida and the families of Sandy Hook to, to, broaden the, to broaden the movement. I mean, there are examples. I mean, again, I think one of the things that differentiates sort of the failure of Occupy and the endurance of Black Lives Matter is Black Lives Matter came up with a document, you know, that has their ideas. And that document both connects to other movements in North America and it connects to, to foreign movements, you know, that you, you can't fight oppression at home if your own government is contributing to the oppression of people in Africa and the Middle East. So I, I think that recognition is, is, is really important. And it also, I mean, just finally, it, it does play to, to media skills. I mean, let's not, you, you, you know, like I can't remember who made this argument, but there's no action without acting. Right? The, you, politics is, a great deal of politics is about acting, it's about convincing, um, it is about connecting to people in a way that makes what they're experiencing not be just um, their own problems. And so there's a art there, you know, and if you want to call it leadership or you want to call it use of social media, I don't know, but that's where I think we need to think more broadly about politics. It's, you know, Voting is not meaningless, but if, if that's all you're focused on is voting, you're not going to get anywhere. Not in this country. Hi, um, my name is Michaela and I'm a student at Case. Um, so my question was hey, about... Michaela. Hi. <laughs> um, this interplay of organizing and revolutions in the wake of capitalism and the role of big money or the role of sponsors um, and how social movement organizing inevitably seems to rub up against big money and those, those who have a power just economically. And so could you just speak to that issue and, and what makes someone successful against coming against that? Or do people need money or do they not? So for the US, a lot of what we've talked about tonight are not social movements proper, they're campaigns. So I would argue that the, I actually have a student who's doing her senior capstone on this uh, topic. So what we have is not a gun control movement, we have a gun control campaign with some very specific issues. And although there may be immigrant movements, for the Dreamers, for example, there's a very specific campaign. Um, as Professor Moore suggested, these are not revolutionary campaigns. Um, but what's interesting is that neither of these campaigns necessarily challenges um, uh, advanced capitalism as it exists in the United States. Um, it does, the gun control <coughs> campaign, which is right now fairly limited, uh, there are some very, very specific demands, but these only challenge gun manufacturers and they may challenge the power of the National Rifle Association. But this doesn't challenge advanced capitalism and there are many people who are perfectly, appallingly wealthy um, who will not be hurt by this campaign and in fact support it. So that's one of the things that I think is fairly emblematic about what we've been talking about, or if, if just fairly interesting to me about what we've been talking tonight. We're not talking, at least in the United States, in grand terms about big movements, but rather fairly specific um, campaigns. Now, this is not to say that campaigns are, are, are meaningless, because campaigns are actually how we see social movements move. So when we think about the Me Too campaign, um, that's part of the larger feminist movement, which itself is part of the larger women's movement, and that's certainly transnational. 
Um, and so that's, that campaign, which is really important, it's been very successful as well, um, uh, is something that, again, probably doesn't severely challenge advanced um, capitalism. I did want to say one thing about social media. Social media appears to me right now to be really useful in these small targeted campaigns where people can act just on information. So the Me Too campaign has removed um, Harvey uh, Weinstein from his position and has destroyed his company, which has now been bought by a team of five women who are part of advanced capitalism, <laughs> by the way. Um, the other is that social movement campaigns seem to be really good in regard to boycotts. So don't want to buy my airplane tickets from Delta um, or United anymore because they offer advantages to the National Rifle Association. Again, not a challenge to advance capitalism, but very specific, easy to organize, quick to act on. Um, and so we see lots of firms suddenly backing away from getting near to the NRA. That would be a very sexual, a successful campaign. Um, if those students can make it clear that anyone who takes money from that organization um, will not get their vote and will be a target for other kinds of social media um, activism. Thank you. So I think we have one final question. Okay. So um, my question is actually about American exceptionalism. So Professor Moore talked a little bit about it, but when we think about um, how successful movements or revolutions or even, I would say, radical movements or campaigns can be, what block does American exceptionalism play to those different movements? And uh, outside of it just being a block, how do we overcome American exceptionalism in these conversations? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, so the idea of American exceptionalism, uh, and there's other versions of this in other countries, but it's this idea that our country or the country under discussion stands outside of history. It's not like we're number one or the best. Exceptionalism is an argument that's put forward by American politicians that that's not it at all. We're not, it's not just that we're number one. We are different than other, every other country in the world. We, our history is somehow so special, it separates us. And you know, the big problem with the exceptionalist argument in US history is our history of racism. I mean, that is the thing that constantly, you know, is, is, is that thing that, you know, it's that, uh, um, as Alice Walker said, the norm against noticing, right? We don't want to notice it. We, we kind of look away, and that's how we deal with it. Um, and it's a, hard thing to, it's a hard thing to wrestle with because it's a powerful political argument that political leaders want to tell other voters that we are part of a, of a great movement and that we're exceptional. Um, I think the way you know, around that is, is, is partly to shine the light on those areas that we don't want to notice but also to speak to the values that we ostensibly believe in, you know? I mean, and so one of the problems, like, related to this last question about capitalism is this idea, it's not so much that there are powerful, wealthy groups that can stop movements, that's true, but where their power really works is in this idea that we really believe that there's no other alternative, right? There can't be an, we can't envision a world of paid maternity leave. We can't envision a world of um, serious progressive taxation. We can't envision a world where um, uh, guns are kept in safes in people's houses and they get in. This is, this is part of how uh, change is made. Because yeah, in the short term, attacking very powerful organizations, particularly if they have structural advantages, is not a good way to making progress. But, but where power acts is in those norms that we take for granted. And that we, we think that, oh, it can't be needed. And I think that's partly where exceptionalism has its power. That we are, 
if we, you know, we believe in this thing that we stand outside history, therefore anything that we're doing is good. And if we're already doing it, then, then let's not change it. Um, and again, so I think that's where an active citizenry focused on where those social and political norms are being inculcated and born and replicated, that's, that's where the target is. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to take on directly the NRA um, or any powerful organization on the left or the right. Rather, you gotta, you gotta work at changing those norms. Um, and so, it, yeah, American exceptionalism is a, is a tough thing. It tends to be debunked a lot and demystified in the American Academy, but outside it gets replicated in a variety of ways that we don't really think of as political, but, but most certainly are, you know, these areas where we're debating norms and creating norms. Do you have one more question? All right, one more. Um, <laughs> I heard you... Um, Define revolution and mention that uh, why the Arab uh, Spring is, doesn't really qualify as a revolution. Um, I wanted to ask about the fall of communism in Eastern Europe that happened 10 years after the, Amer uh, the uh, Iranian Revolution. Um, in the light of the fact that a whole slew of countries. Uh, <coughs> Aside from uh, from Russia, who's not really qualifies as a democracy, but uh, uh, many countries, about half of Europe, uh, used to be in a used to have centralized economies, so their economic and social systems changed. They are now vibrant democracies and market economies. So the changes I think do qualify as as uh, revolutionary. And as far as for uh, violence, I come from uh, Romania, where the overthrow of communism uh, resulted in about 3,000 deaths. So is the overthrow Does of that qualify as a revolution? Right. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, I had I had left that I had left that out. Um, the only distinction is that um, I do think it these count as social revolutions, but in in one sense. These things don't are not easy endings. Like again, I think you know historians say the French Revolution took a hundred years. I would still think that in the United States we're still wrestling with the ideas of our revolution, implementing them, and things like that. Um, so I think in one sense, even though those the uh, the, over, the the changes in Europe and the fall of the Warsaw Pact and the, and the and 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 Soviet domination definitely is. Uh, uh, it's more than a political revolution. I, I mean, I agree with you. Um, it also can be seen as more similar to sort of the kinds of revolutions that we saw in the 50s and 60s, like the French and Alger uh, Algerians overthrowing French domination. I mean, these movements in Eastern Europe were both changing their own societies, but they were liberating themselves from Soviet centralized control. And that's one thing that's, I think, kind of an interesting distinction. Um, and also the interesting thing about the, those former countries is, I mean, they're going in different directions. I mean, I don't think, I think, there, you know, there's questions about Poland's democracy and Hungary. things like this. Yeah, and Hungary. Um, but and I think that's in a sense healthy, right? That, that, that shows that the changes that were there were more than just a political revolution. Um, but sometimes these things take a long time, you know, in terms of the, the, the power change. Because I, I'm just 
thinking about Russia. Um, many of those, you know, power centers and those individuals that dominated the party and the apparatus in the Soviet Union resurface and reconstitute themselves now as oligarchs or whatever, you know, the, the Yeltsin politicians were. Um, and so there is, you know, it, sometimes there's an art to trying to figure out when that social change comes. Because it was easier in the French Revolution, the American Revolution, the Russian Revolution, where you're like taking down a monarchy um, and replacing it with something completely different. So I think we've had a very, very rich discussion, and obviously we just scratched the surface of this topic. And I'm sure Professor Beckwith and Professor Moore, if you want to come up afterwards, we'll be happy to continue the conversation. But for now, apparently this has stirred some passions in the audience. Someone in the audience gave me the quote from the Beatles, imagine, um, imagine the world will be as one. So with that, I'd like us to um, thank uh, Professor Beckwith and Professor Moore for the conversation, and the forum is now adjourned.